Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Let's get back to the issue of the pandemic, about COVID, about how it's affecting everyone in this country. By the way, tomorrow you'll hear an interview that I recorded on Wednesday with another journalist in India. Just a remarkable young woman, uh, just incredible journalistic skills, and she describes what she's encountering. You will not want to miss that. But how about medicine in this country and COVID, and specifically emergency medicine? How is COVID-19 presenting itself through patients arriving at the ER at uh, British Columbia Hospital? Dr. Michael Curry is back with us, clinical associate professor of the Department of Emergency Medicine at UBC, also practices emergency medicine at Delta Hospital in British Columbia, and holds a law degree. Dr. Curry, welcome back. Thank you very much for taking the time. Good afternoon, and it's a pleasure to be back. Would you just uh, tell us, please, what it is, and this is of great interest to people across the country who are wondering, you know, what's going on on the front lines? What are you seeing at your ER as far as patients with COVID symptoms are appearing or concerned these days? I think there's three main trends that we're seeing in the emergency department. The first is Last year at this time, people were scared to come to the hospital. That fear has evaporated. The patients that we normally see in 2017, 2016, before the pandemic, those patients are back in force. So last year at this time, our our emergency departments were throughout North America were actually fairly slow. And so the patients we were seeing were overwhelmingly patients with severe COVID. Uh, this year, it's different. Our regular patients, our ankle sprains, our cuts, our chest pains, or stroke, those patients are back. So the volume in the emergency department is a lot closer to normal than it was one year ago. Second trend that we're seeing is younger people with COVID. Last year, we were seeing people predominantly older people, a lot of residents of long-term care facilities. This year, we're seeing people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe up into their 50s presenting with COVID. The older population we're not seeing, and that's, I think, largely due to immunization. And then the third thing that we're seeing is a lot of side effects and concerns about the vaccination. Uh, there's been many people coming in with symptoms like COVID a couple of days after a vaccination, and that can sort of be expected. The vaccine is generating an immune response. That's how it protects you, and that immune response might give you slight fevers, headaches, muscle aches, pains, fatigue, just like a COVID infection. But of course, because the symptoms are so similar, we need to check out to make sure that you haven't picked up a COVID infection because that can definitely happen, especially in the first couple of days after you get the vaccine. So we're seeing more people, we're seeing younger people with COVID, and we're seeing a lot of people with concerns about symptoms after vaccination. So there are also concerns and questions being asked about the 16-week wait period uh, that's been recommended by NASI and has been followed by most of the provinces, maybe all of the provinces, between the first and the second jabs. Are you seeing uh, people coming forward who are presenting with COVID symptoms and perhaps, in fact, are um, infected with COVID who are have been vaccinated once and are beyond that three weeks recommended by Pfizer vaccination period and before the 16 weeks for the second vaccination? Am I, I don't even know if I'm asking a clear question here. <laughs> I think I think I made it out right. And uh, I'm not seeing too many people coming in with COVID 
who've had a single vaccination yet. There's definitely some level of protection. Public health authorities in Canada love to cite tracking numbers from the UK, which they cite over 90% protection. But you're quite right. This week, uh, a couple of new studies came out which are suggesting that the uh, protection of just a single dose is maybe more in the 60 to 70% range than the 90% range we've been mentioning. And I've definitely seen a substantial number of patients who've gotten COVID right around when they got the first vaccine. So the vaccine takes, if you look at the graphs, it's really about day 12 to day 14 is when the protection kicks in. And so I can think of the last seriously ill COVID patient I had. He was a gentleman who... uh, I think he may have fudged, uh, fudged his health condition when he got his vaccine because he had COVID symptoms for about two or three days and then got the vaccine on the third day of having, um, of having what in hindsight turned out to be COVID. And I've seen a number of people like that, people coming down with COVID within the first week or so of being immunized. But I'm not seeing a lot of people on the front line. I'm not seeing a lot of people coming in who've been immunized more than about three weeks, more than about three weeks previously. Uh, are, are you then comfortable with the, I don't want to get mired in this, but are you comfortable with the 16-week wait period between the first and second vaccine? And let me just ask you the, the, the this follow-up question before I forget. Uh, Global News was reporting that in British Columbia, um, patients who have received one shot, and it was AstraZeneca, may be given an opportunity, likely will be given an opportunity to choose a different vaccination for their second shot. Would you comment on that, please? Sure. So your first question about the 16-week waiting period, I think it's a good bet, but I would be a lot more comfortable if we had more hard data on uh, the effectiveness of stretching it out to four months. So when we made that recommendation, we didn't have four months of experience with that vaccine. That recommendation came out in February for a vaccine that only hit the market in December. So I think it was a good bet. The way vaccines work is they do give you immunity. The immunity should not fade in just a four-month period. It may fade in a year or so, but for four months, you should be good. But we didn't have hard studies to support that decision. And you can't have hard studies about extending a vaccine interval to four months when the vaccine's only been on the market for two months. And the studies, of course, were based on either a a three-week or a four-week interval between it. So to follow the studies to the letter, we should have stuck to three to four weeks. Was it a good bet going to 16 weeks? I don't think it was unreasonable, but I have to admit I would have been more comfortable if we had more hard data first. In regards to the second question, the mixing and matching vaccines, The answer is, I don't know yet. Uh, There's a study largely being done in the UK where that's what they're doing. They're immunizing with one vaccine and then giving you a booster shot with a second vaccine. And again, we're in a situation where there is a certain logic to doing that, that we're training the body to fight maybe a slightly broader array of antigens and produce a slightly broader array of antibodies. There's a good theory behind that. Do we have hard evidence for that? We don't. And so that data may be coming out. Again, it's about a four-month four-month waiting period, and we've only been doing this for about four or five months. So that data should be forthcoming from the UK where they're doing that. But we don't have a good study saying that that is either beneficial or detrimental. Theoretically, it should be beneficial. But unfortunately, in medicine, we've learned that a lot of things that are good ideas in theory and practice don't work out. 
So let me ask you this question then, Dr. Curry, because I'm going to be seeing emails because I've talked about vaccines on the program a lot today, and we will again tomorrow. And I was vaccinated four plus weeks ago, and I've been seeing emails from people who just don't believe in vaccines or are very concerned about what might happen to them and, and hear negative messaging and they're affected by the negative messaging. What do you say to the people who are afraid of being vaccinated? What do you say to them? So I think among the medical profession, there's as close to unanimity as you're going to get in anything. Yes, there there are a couple of people way out at the outskirts that may raise some questions, but in the professional medical community, I think you're going to find well over 99% of physicians strongly support vaccines. And the problem with vaccines is they're a victim of their own success. You know, the diseases that they've eradicated, smallpox, smallpox over the history of civilization had killed hundreds of millions of human beings. We never think about smallpox because vaccines eradicated it. Likewise, polio. Polio terrorized parents in their 40s or 50s. No worse fate than a child potentially getting polio and lifelong complications. We don't think about it anymore. We're not worried about polio because we don't see it. And so I think vaccines have been so overwhelmingly effective in the developed world that we've forgot about what happens without vaccines. And I think COVID is going to be very similar. We do know that there are some complications with vaccines, like there are with everything. We know that the risk with the AstraZeneca vaccine of the clotting disorder is somewhere in the realm of one in 100,000 people. We do know that the risk of you dying from COVID if you get COVID is somewhere around 1%. So we're looking at a risk from COVID that is three or four orders of magnitude, so 10,000 times greater or 1,000 times greater than the risk of the immunization causing a bad reaction. So it's a terrible thing to happen to that very small number of people who do get adverse reactions, but it's a very, very small number. And the impact of COVID is much, much greater than the small number of complications with the vaccine. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.